from the Bonded College. There have been several D&D products that introduce villainous NPCs, from the Shady Dragon Inn in Basic D&D, the Forgotten Realms product Hall of Heroes, and Villain's Law Book, to AD&D 2nd Edition's The Complete Villain's Handbook. In D&D 3rd Edition, we got the Book of Elder Evils introducing campaign-ending villainous monsters and exemplars of evil, introducing more down-to-earth villains. But across all of these supplements, only one thing has remained true. Warduke made the best action figure out of everybody across all of these supplements. Bar none, hands down, fight me on it, I dare you. And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time, and we both love lots of other RPGs. D&D is where we rehearse our villain monologues over and over again. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ange, and I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnome Cast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. In 2021, they made me head Gnome, and I'm in charge, so you can blame me for it all now. <laughs> I'm Jared, I'm the review Gnome at Gnome Stew, and I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. All right, after we look at the games we've been running in our campaign journal, we'll be talking about running big bads in your campaign. Then we'll have some recommendations of D&D-related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. So I ran an off-books D&D game at Origins for the kids of some friends. Uh, I mentioned this in a previous episode, but my friend knew that one of the kids coming was new to RPGs and wanted to make sure they got some guaranteed good experiences. Because, let's be, let's be clear, you, you never know what you're going to get at a convention one-shot, and D&D especially can be a mixed bag, and this newbie kid really did want to try D&D. Yes, that is very true. So, in the group, I had two 17-year-olds, a 14-year-old, and a 12-year-old, I think. I'm not a... 100% sure on the, the youngest one's age. The two sons of my friend both have a fair amount of experience with RPGs, but not necessarily D&D. Oddly enough, the 12-year-old, assumingly 12-year-old, was the one that had the most experience with D&D out of all of them, and he was happy to correct me on rules when I got them wrong. <laughs> I started setting up the scenario by saying that they were all once part of the same adventuring party, the Silver Talons. But a year ago, one of their friends of the party, an NPC named Gaskell Tyrdon, wanted to get married and retire from adventuring. Of course, there was just one more job they had to do. <laughs> and obviously, Gaskell did not survive that fight. He ended up sacrificing himself to take out the evil necromancer, Jamie and Shadow End. I had a whole bunch of questions lined up to ask the kids about what their character's relationship with Gaskell was. And this included things like, why did Gaskell choose you to be the best man in his wedding? How did Gaskell save your life? And what were Gaskell's last words before he sacrificed himself taking out Shadow End? And I wasn't really 100% sure that this clicked with the kids, but once we got into it, I knew they were hooked. Yeah. They were all called back by Gaskell's widow, explaining that her town had been attacked by bandits who had come specifically to steal Gaskell's old adventuring gear, and then they threatened her baby, which was obviously Gaskell's daughter. So she had been pregnant when he died, because of course more drama here. 
the moment I mentioned that the baby was in danger, they were like, okay, who do we have to go after? Who are we? Like, there wasn't a single bit of hesitation there. I was a little worried considering they're all kids. They might be like, okay, fine, whatever. Yeah. But no, no, they were, they were down. They were down <laughs> for this. Since it was a convention one shot, I needed to fit it into that four-ish hour slot. So I set up one opening large encounter with basically the bandits who had raided the town along with the zombie ogre, which was supposed to be the surprise for them. Next was a little bit of exploration as they went into the hillside and found this old catacomb type thing. And then the final encounter was the big fight with the obviously still alive Jamie and Shadow End. The youngest had some issues talking over the other kids, and I kept having to remind him to hang on, wait your turn. He also kept having his Warforged cleric rush into the next area, either triggering traps or fights. Uh, the, the very last fight was like, so how do you guys approach this? And the youngest one goes, I just run in there. And the oldest one went, can we just please not? Uh, enthusiasm. Jamie and uh, Shadow End did get to throw off a lightning bolt, which did take down the cleric, which I felt bad about because he'd already been getting a little bit of grief from the other players for like rushing into things. And then he's down at the beginning of the fight. And I'm just like, oh, I don't know that they're going to take the time to heal him. They may just focus on the fight. And then wouldn't you know it, he rolled a 20 on his first death save. So did that immediate pop up with one hit point and he's there for the rest of the fight. <laughs> what was really interesting is the newbie player um, was the two 17 year olds were basically in one of my later games that I was officially running for the convention. And after it was all sudden done, they were like, can I have your email or can I be friends with you on discord if I have questions about RPGs? So I was pretty happy because that means we recruited another one. <laughs> and they were pretty solid. They were they were a good player. That's I good. was really happy with them. That's good. <laughs> I was just going to say when you were talking about, you know, worrying about teenagers stopping and healing somebody in a fight. I've been in party parties with people in their late 20s and early 30s that didn't think to stop <laughs> and heal somebody that was dying. Not that I'm still bitter about that at all. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I also did get to play uh, my buddy Tristan's um, Night's Dark Terror game. We were basically still on the homestead, still fighting off waves of goblins. The final fight happened with the, the king of the Red Blade goblins, along with a shaman and 27 other goblins rushing out of the woods at us. <laughs> and thank God for the sleep spell, because there was like three rounds in a row where none of us could hit anything. And then our, our halfling paladin, who was, like, standing in the middle of melee, surrounded by goblins, he had a 22 AC at the moment, and all of a sudden, five goblins all got lucky and took him down. Wow. It was really bad. We were, we were starting to get a little worried. <laughs> Sheer numbers are still dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's like, my tactics didn't work. And I'm like, well... <laughs> You know, you throw enough stuff at the wall and some stuff is going to stick. <laughs> of course, the best tactic in that, that you know, standpoint is fireball. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah. We, we all kept going, oh, like we're too, young, we're too low level to have fireball. But it was like, oh, this would be a glorious fireball. And I'm like, do any of you have shatter? Anything like that? Oh, goodness. Well, this last Thursday... Uh, we wrapped up our Magical Mystery Tour, and by that I mean 
the PCs traveling across the plains trying to get uh, Lady Ire, the Valkyrie that is the uh, the ancestor to our divine soul uh, sorcerer Ivy, out of the prison of eternal torment. They were currently in hell getting the uh, release papers notarized, but they had to do a job, which was to uh, fight off some rat demons in a library. <laughs> we had to play exterminators. <laughs> I think the rat demon fight, I had fun with it. I don't think it felt super dangerous, but it, it they still felt like enough of a challenge that you didn't completely ignore them. They, I mean, they were basically just running around in circles trying to uh, get you in their uh, shadow breath weapon as much as they could, and they all had um, souls that they could eat, which uh, gave them advantage on everything that they were doing <laughs> the next round after they ate a soul. Yeah, I think I think they were more, I mean, and I say this, I say this with love, they were more annoying than dangerous. Oh, yeah. It was definitely. a fun fight. It, you know, it felt like we all got to show off a little bit on what we could do, but mm -hmm. I'm still just like, oh, these things suck. <laughs> and uh, basically, they they finished up the job and they go back to the barrister, who was the devil that was going to notarize the paperwork for them. And he notarizes it and up walks a chort devil. A Chort Devil is from the uh, Kobold Breath, Home of Beasts, I forget which one. But a Chort Devil is a devil that likes to recite why you are no longer protected by a contract or the rules of a particular situation. They basically had enough time to escape for him to like recite exactly what was, uh, what was the reason that he could attack them. So they managed to... Uh, to concentrate on their uh, transport token to get back to the path right before he was able to finish his recitation of exactly why they were no longer protected. <laughs> I was like, bye-bye. <laughs> they get back to the path. In some of the other trips that we had on the path, they had been rolling enough to where they were encountering things on the path. This time we were rolling pretty low, so there was just walking along the path for two hours here and there. And eventually they get to the Prison of Eternal Torment. Such a lovely place. <laughs> and they basically show up and there's this ledge that drops off into the void and this row of lights that leads up to this giant imposing gate. And there is a, a big fiend standing at the gate who is the, uh, the, the guardian of the gate. And as they start walking towards the uh, prison of eternal torment, there is a, a red draconic looking devil that shows up who just happens to be Kazina's grandfather. <laughs> Yeah, we don't talk about that side of the family. I had this in mind kind of from the beginning because Kazina is a tiefling and they're in the Dragon Empire. So I was trying to find some way to bring all of that together. So I thought, what better way than to have the Infernal Ancestor be a Red Abishé so that this is a devil that is specifically attuned to dragons? Yeah, he's he was very demanding. And very pushy, and Kazina was having none of it. Essentially, he revealed to them that the entire point of him kidnapping Lady Iyer and paying for her to be incarcerated in the, uh, the Prison of Eternal Torment was so that he could show up on a plane of existence from which he was not banished to make his case to Kazina one last time. He just wants her to use the scroll so he can grant her wish and be summoned to the Prime Material Plane because Red Abishé have this natural ability to control dragons. And he works for Mammon, the Archdevil of Greed, and Mammon really would like to control a lot of those dragons that are that are uh, in charge of the Marodi Empire. 
So he's just begging her, please let me grant your wish. I want you to, to live in wealth and opulence. All you have to do is just let me show up and take over the Marodi Empire. And when Kazina said no, he turned it around and said, you're just as bad as your sister. That's why I had to uh, sell her off to those hags. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like Kazina was going to say yes anyway, but <laughs> then he dropped that bomb and it's like, oh, oh, you are done. <laughs> if there's a single wart on her nose, I will find you and I will end you. And if you've never read the lore on that, um, sometimes hags will adopt a person, a, a humanoid, and turn them into a hag to, you know, basically to adopt them as children. So that is the situation that Kazina's twin sister has uh, found herself in. And we've had this kind of running idea of we don't know where Kazina's uh, twin was this whole time. So I thought this was a good time to kind of fold that into the rest of the storylines that were unfolding. What I loved is that that tidbit of information was dropped. And I want to say the rest of the other players like, wait, you have a sister? <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because it's not that you haven't talked about it in-game, but you've never really talked about it with the other PCs. It's always been, yeah. like, talking to some of your contacts about her if they if they happen to know her, things like that. Yeah. So that was kind of interesting to, like, bring that up in front of the rest of the party. Thankfully, I think the rest of the party is on board with once we're home and get a good night's rest, we're off to deal with some hags to rescue Kazina's twin sister and Nezik. Yeah, thankfully that coven of hags, you still have a reason to go after them, even if you weren't trying to uh, rescue your sister. Yeah. Because they're the same ones that have been aiding the uh, the cult of Nethys and them, yeah. you know, transporting back and forth into the city to uh, commit terrorist acts. So you still had an axe to grind with them anyway. It's just this time it's personal. Yes. <laughs> so the PCs were kind of making checks to see what they knew about Red Abishate so they could figure out how tough he was and whether or not this was a good instance of we should uh, roll initiative and start taking swings at this guy. I think that your Cyanite uh, may have been very close to uh, doing it regardless of how uh, how dangerous he was. I mean, he would have been fine. Just ask him. <laughs> so at this point, the guardian, the captain of the gate, who was a Nykoloth, um, shows up, which not quite as powerful as an Abishé, but if a fight would have broken out, the PCs and a Nykoloth versus him is definitely more intimidating than just them trying to beat up on somebody that's almost on the same power level as a Pit Fiend. Almost. He basically went his separate way because he didn't want to bring any more heat from another group of fiends that were running this prison. The group goes in, presents the... Uh, all of our documentation and all of that stuff. The... Ultraloth judge that runs the prison of eternal torment sees that everything's in order, frees Lady Iyer. Lady Iyer thanks all of them and teleports them back to Midgard for the first time in a long while, and they're back home. They no longer have their planar token, so they can't just, you know, concentrate on it and walk between planes. But they're back home, and now they can start making their plans for what they want to do next, which Kazina seems to want to really potentially, you know, stick some psychic knives into a hag yeah I, th I think you know narratively speaking it's Kazina's like okay I'm going 
if you want to come with me, I'd appreciate it, but I'm going. Yeah, and I, I believe everyone else basically said, no, we're, we're this is good. This is, you know, this is what we can do next. So I don't think that's going to be a problem. But all of that, you know, unraveling who some of the long term villains were might play into our Dungeon Masters workshop that we have coming up. Where we're going to talk about the big bad. <laughs> Welcome to the Dungeon Masters workshop. Do you remember anything about Big Bads in early D&D products? Because this is definitely a you <laughs> question, because while I played in the 80s, it was very... I don't think I ever had a character over 5th level. What's really funny is, I didn't... Um, I mean, there are definitely people that played before I did, because like I said, I was around 1985, at which point story elements were becoming a lot more prominent in adventures by that point in time. But you still had the basic set that had the keep on the borderland in it. As I have become an old wizened man, I have uh, been able to read through <laughs> some of the older adventures. And a lot of those early adventures are basically dungeon crawls. So your big bad is not somebody that is really foreshadowed so much as you walk into that final chamber and you hope you got a clue as to whether it was a dragon or a vampire or whatever, because if you didn't pick up on those clues, it was going to be a lot harder to kill it. And surprise. It's not so much a big bad as just a boss. Yeah, fight. essentially. It was like, this is the last room in here. I, I think you saw a slight shift with like the Tomb of Horrors because the whole storyline of that was sort of kind of telling the story of a Sararak. And then, you know, in the last room, if you didn't find the fake room first, you run into the Demi-Lich, which is what was left of a Sararak. So in that case, you kind of got a little bit of a story leading up to the big bad, but it was still sort of like, the big bad is the monster at the end of the book and not so much, you know, somebody that was influencing a lot of things all the way through. But into the mid 80s and into the late 80s, you started getting some of these other stories like Queen of the Demon Web Pits, which is like the whole big story arc where Loth is manipulating the giants and getting them to attack settlements in uh, Jeff. And you finally, you know, find out that all these giants are being manipulated and you decide that the best way to deal with this is to go into the abyss and to fight a demon lord. <laughs> However, Loth only had 66 hit points in first edition. It's okay. <laughs> but I mean, the fact that she was defeatable, she really was a villain in that, in that instance, more so than she was kind of what she is now, where she is a deity that's kind of beyond you directly touching her. Yeah. Um, I think the tel Temple of Elemental Evil is another place where they started getting into this idea that there is a story behind the villains because... You had all of the elemental cultists that had their portion of the uh, the Temple of Elemental Evil, and they're basically trying to bring about the you know the the end of the world by summoning their their Arco elementals. And Zugtmoy is the the demon lord of um, of funguses that lives in there. And then, if you really want to get into storylines that have villains, you had Dragonlance, where it wasn't just that Takesis, the big you know dragon goddess, was the main enemy. It's that just about every adventure had a member of the dragon armies that ended up being your big villains. You had characters like Verminard and Ariacus and Lord Toad. So you really started seeing a lot more of this idea that maybe if you want more story, you need to have villains that are active and not just somebody that you trip over. I say this about a lot of things regarding D&D in the, the earlier 80s. Story was something that happened by accident. Mm-hmm. I honestly, Dragonlance is probably one of the points where they first started being like, 
here are some major story elements that the characters could be working towards or be aware of or be threats in the world. Before that, it was all in like a lot of the gameplay I had in the 80s was very much you're here, you're doing something. It, there's no big bad in charge. Maybe there's a dragon at the end of the dungeon, but you're not high enough level for that. You're going to die before then anyway. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> what are some of the most memorable villains from D&D? You've mentioned some of them, but there's definitely others that came afterwards. Well, I think, for one thing, Lolth has been interesting because, like I said, she kind of moved from being a villain that you were expected to fight when she had stats that were kind of attainable to being a deity that motivates other villains. Strahd von Zarevich is definitely one of the most enduring villains in D&D because there is a version of Ravenloft for every edition since he was first, uh, he was first introduced, except I don't think there was a Ravenloft adventure for 4th edition. No, I don't think there was. But other than that, he's come back each time, <laughs> just like a horror movie villain. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that's kind of interesting is, first off, for those of you that are Dragonlance purists that maintain that Takesis and Tiamat are not the same deity, <laughs> I wrong. feel you, but she's a five-headed dragon goddess. <laughs> yeah. And Tiamat and or Takesis as a five-headed dragon goddess, has been a villain for a lot of D&D's history. And what's interesting about Tiamat is, even in 5th edition, she was given stats so that you could physically interact with her at the end of the Tyranny of Dragons storyline. I got to fight Tiamat. That was pretty darn cool. Mm -hmm. I mostly just kept the fighters alive because I was playing a cleric. <laughs> I did get to hit her with a couple of lightning bolts, though. I think in 3rd edition... I can't help but think, like, this is a name that has resonated now, but hasn't been used for a while, and that's a Shardalon. That was the big red dragon that all of the, what was probably the first adventure path, like the Forge of Fury and all of those third edition adventures that came out, all kind of led up to learning more and more about a Shardalon, who was this big, nasty, great worm red dragon. Yeah, see, that one, that was one I didn't know, but then I didn't really do a whole lot with the adventure path mm -hmm. in third edition. I have to throw the Xanathar on this list. I realize the Xanathar that we have now is not the Xanathar that was around when I was first playing D&D because it is a title. It is the title of the Beholder that runs the Xanathar's Thieves Guild. There has been a Beholder running that Thieves Guild for over 120 years now in Waterdeep. So I think that's, that's good enough to count as a long-term <laughs> villain there. I think it works. I think it works. And, I mean, <laughs> even if you just look at him from how he is set up and handled in current 5th uh, edition materials. Xanathar is definitely a big bad. I have to also, thankfully he's gotten a recent uh, revisit, but Lord Soth, the Knight of the Black Rose, one of my absolute favorite characters. He is a tragic idiot that brought about his own downfall. <laughs> and I really love that the Dragonlance adventure focused on being able to make him a primary villain for part of that adventure and not just a monster that is a bodyguard for somebody else. When I was playing the Neverwinter MMO, the big bad in the first era of that game was Valindra, who is a elf necromancer lich in, uh, in Neverwinter. And is she from other material or was she created for the MMO? Touching on fourth edition era stuff, which is not my forte, but 
I do think Valindra did come about specifically for the MMO, but okay. she has been referenced in things since then. Like she did appear like in the fourth edition Neverwinter Source book. She, I think she started there, but she definitely expanded out of that and is part of the lore now. That's one of those interesting uh, exchanges of ideas that happens <laughs> between video games and D&D. Mm -hmm. And honestly, a lot of D&D video games have had some decent villains come out of them, too. Like, you know, John Arenicus in uh, Baldur's Gate 2 and my poor favorite uh, archdevil, Belafet, who was uh, voiced by David Ogden Stiers in uh, Icewind Dale. So let's move on and talk about some memorable villains from pop culture in general, because there are a lot of them that can inspire the big bads you put in your D&D game. I suspect we're going to have some overlap, so I want you to uh, unload some of these first. <laughs> so I want to give a shout out to the most recent one from the MCU. The High Evolutionary hit my buttons harder <laughs> than any MCU villain in recent years. I just wanted to punch this guy in the face. Mm -hmm. um, and he was just so sadistic and callous that it was like, really really well done and i mean there are other memorable villains from the mcu as well you've got thanos you've got killmonger i loved i love michael keaton's vulture oh yeah uh, definitely from the first spider-man movie there, there's been some really good ones yes there have been some that were iffy <laughs> for mel keith mel keith could have been so much cooler <laughs> and ronan yeah i mean i don't know that i ever like even in the comics like cared a lot about Ronan. I did like that they had a callback to him in Captain Marvel though. Yes, yes. I was I was like, okay, he gets a little bit of a comeback there. <laughs> you know, and I mean I'm not sure you can quite count Loki as a big bad anymore. He Yeah, but he definitely of, was. And that is He a, definitely was. The, the redeemed villain is definitely a villain archetype there. <laughs> but moving away from our beloved superheroes, <laughs> you can get into there's there's Hans Gruber. From Die Hard, he is an excellent example of a big bad who is just chewing the scenery and making your hero's day a miserable one. The Kurgan from Highlander, <laughs> which is kind of near and dear to my heart right now because I'm <laughs> playing Highlander. And then there's, you know, the, the big daddy of them all, Darth Vader. Literally. I mean, he's... he's <laughs> yeah, literally. He's got a complicated history because we know more about him now than we did but you know if you'd asked this question up until up until the clone wars came out it was you know darth vader was iconic as a bad guy mm -hmm. he just got a little more complicated when you got some of his backstory so i have a transition here because you mentioned the kurgan and the kurgan was played by the wonderful clancy brown who <laughs> also was the voice for lex luthor in <laughs> all of the um DC animated universe things like you know Superman the animated series mm -hmm. and Justice League. Lex is one of my all-time favorite villains. Yes. I think he's way overused now, but I can't go and talk about pop culture villains without mentioning Joker. Yes. Some someday when no one has used Joker for a decade, he will be a great it's villain not again. Gonna happen. <laughs> it's not gonna happen. I mean, I, I will I will still happily honor Mark Hamill is the voice of the Joker, mm -hmm. you know, because as, as much as Heath, Lever, Heath Ledger's portrayal is iconic and memorable, it's like a lot of us know the voice. 
from the Batman animated series, and that was our beloved Mark Hamill. Speaking of Darth Vader's children. <laughs> and another tie-in, since you mentioned Hans Gruber. I mean, this is true across a number of versions of the story, but I cannot help but think about the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves version of oh. the Sheriff of Nottingham. And I'm gonna gut his heart out with a spoon! <laughs> Why a spoon, cousin? Because it'll hurt more! <laughs> Not to mention he canceled Christmas. That was one of my favorite. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, I mean, there are so many good villains out there, but kind of digging in and figuring out why some of these villains are good and why they're memorable and why they stay with us helps us figure out what makes a good villain in a D&D adventure. Really, it's you need that, that mix of somebody who is definitely a threat and especially in the early stages of a campaign or even in a one shot in the beginning, they need to be a threat that the players know about, but is just out of reach. Yeah. And that is, I think that is a recurring thing. Like it's tricky sometimes in D and D because there are times when people kind of shoot from the hip in D and D when they wouldn't in other genres, mm -hmm. um, they're a little bit more likely to say, Oh, you're 75% this person's a villain. Well, I'm not going to feel that bad if I murder him. You need to, you know, build up your consequences so that it's like, no, you're going to have to be a little bit more sure of that. Yeah. But I mean, that the modern era portrayal of Lex Luthor and Superman is exactly this, because Superman runs into Lex so many times when he's almost certain Lex was responsible for something, but he can't prove it. And Lex can just kind of stand there and gloat. It's a really tricky proposition on how to have your big bad in your game. And have your players be aware of them without having your players either murder them outright or have him have to murder the players outright. Because, <laughs> you know, if you put an NPC in front of the players, things can happen. Yes. And as much as I love D&D, &D, and we say that at the beginning of the show, D&D &D has not had a lot of mechanics for letting you narratively let an NPC escape. Yeah. that some other games have because it's not the right time for you to fight this person yet. Either you end up with the situation where the player, like, like could have happened at the Prison of Eternal Torment. If we had decided to fight Kazina's grandfather, he probably would have wiped the floor with us, you know, which would not have been enjoyable for any of us. You or us as the players. Yeah, really. I mean, and... Yeah, as I said, like if the Nykoloth had joined in and said, hey, you're fighting, you shouldn't be fighting and joined up on your side. I, there's still a possibility that, you know, one or two of the PCs could end up dead there, even if you defeated him. And that's not really how you want that confrontation to go. When I ran my first Eberron campaign, I wanted to set up a recurring villain. She wasn't going to be the big bad. She was kind of going to be the big bad's right hand. Like, the players mm -hmm. weren't going to learn about who was actually pulling the strings right away. She was going to be the face of their, their, their enemy. And I didn't know what to do at the end of that first fight when they took her down. <laughs> and, and I wanted her to come back later, but they had legitimately won the fight before she had a chance to run away. And, and I'll be honest, I had a conversation with my players. I'm like, I kind of wanted her to be a recurring villain and you guys killed her. And they're like, okay, yeah, but maybe we didn't kill her. Maybe we just knocked her out and took her prisoner and she escapes later. And I'm like, 
if you guys are okay with that. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they regretted it the next time they ran into her. <laughs> but that is how we set that up. What are some of your pieces of advice for how to make a good villain in a in a D&D campaign? I think what's interesting is in an adventure, you just need to hint at somebody being in charge. And then when they run into the person, they can do whatever they need to to them. You know, the, that villain. In a campaign, you know, like we've said, you need them to be able to survive multiple adventure arcs because they don't really feel like a campaign villain until they have survived to mess with the PCs several times. Right. But the other trick is you need the PCs to know they're being messed with. Yes. One of the things that, you know, we've done with this campaign is I had the uh, the Cambion showed up that worked for your grandfather trying to bargain for the uh, for the scroll. They there was the um, the uh, the tutor demon that tried to uh, convince you to uh, use the uh, puzzle box to hide it in there, which was actually a rival of your grandfather's. But it was still kind of playing with that same idea that all of this stuff is going on and you're the focal point of it. So you need to remind people that this is a threat and kind of remind them what the stakes are of this person that's lurking just out of you. Generally speaking, I think you want to have one, your, your villain needs to have minions. Your villain needs to have henchmen that they do send against the players and can get dealt with. You want to, you want to have the villain be a looming threat over everything the players are dealing with. And, they begin to learn who they are as the campaign progresses, and it's not until a later point that you deal with them. In the City of Cowles campaign, our first big bad was the Eben Cowell. He was this mythic crime lord that we'd heard about, and we kept running into people that would reference him, and, oh, he's back. And then we had an actual interaction with him where he showed up and kind of vaguely threatened us but it was in the middle of a crowded bar so we couldn't actually have a fight and then he slipped away and just we kept having these run-ins with him where we would do something to to hobble his efforts and then he would hit back at us just a lot of back and forth like that until we thought we had kind of disabled his organization completely and then we actually ran into him accidentally almost i don't know that it was accidental but it was you know we were fighting somebody else and he happened to be there and we took him out and discovered i was right all along <laughs> it was the mayor it was the lord mayor you know that was a brilliant setup for the way that was all done there's still people above him that we're still finding out mm -hmm. but in you know we currently have a demon invasion to deal with so <laughs> I think with all of those villains that we mentioned, there's a couple archetypes that kind of come out of those. For example, when we talk about somebody like Hans Gruber or Lex Luthor or um, let's say Grand Admiral Thrawn from uh, from Star Wars, mm -hmm. you have that villain that is so smart and always a step ahead of the PCs where you can kind of let the PCs get a little bit of a victory, but then you also signal that the villains still got part of what they wanted. You have to be careful because you don't want the frustration level to go into the red <laughs> with your PCs. But having that constant feeling of this guy is one step ahead of us makes it a lot more satisfying when you finally get one step ahead of them. Yeah. And then the other thing, when you're mentioning somebody like 
we'll say Vader or Strahd or Lord Soth is people that have like this really deep, complicated backstory. And it's not, you're still screwed if you run into them, but they're almost looking past you half the time that they're doing what they're doing because they're still so caught up on, you know, the stuff that ruined their lives that you are kind of inconsequential to them to the point to where even if you foil their plans, they may not even notice you enough to stop and, you know, screw with you. They could just go. (laughs) (sighs) (laughs) It it is an interesting thing because um, I know, I think some of the older Ravenloft adventures did this too, but I know Curse of Strahd does this where they basically tell you, have Strahd show up early when nobody can beat him. He has no desire to kill you because it's Strahd. He is living in his own personal hell and the only joy he gets is from tormenting other people. So he'll just show up and taunt people, and if they do want to attack him at third level, when they have no chance of defeating Strahd, but the point is, he's not going to murder all of them because he wants to keep torturing them. And that is another thing I think you should keep in mind, is if you have that kind of villain where he kind of wants the hero to be around to see him perform all these great things that he's done, even if they win and they beat all the PCs, they may not want to kill them. Never underestimate the utility of having them taken prisoner. Exactly. If you were in a situation where it's a quote-unquote PPK, just have them have wake up, you know, in chains or in prison or something like that, and it changes the tone of the campaign, but it keeps the story moving forward without cheapening it. Exactly. And, it, you know, if you're talking about a very analytical, logical villains like, say, Thrawn, you may not want to pull that card but definitely somebody like like you know Strahd would keep a bunch of adventurers alive in his dungeons to see you know what other horrible stuff he keeps down there and then it gives you an excuse to have either someone help them escape or them come up with a plan themselves right so yeah definitely you know there's nothing wrong with having a villain knock everybody out and then decide to keep them all around I mean throwing another villain into this mix Riddler wants somebody to tell him he's smart if there's nobody around to tell him he's smart, he's going to be very upset. <laughs> <laughs> this is kind of what I did with the quarry in my Emeron campaign. Like, they released that quarry, and it was way out of their league. It played with them for a little bit, and then it basically went on its way because it was now free. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee you, you do something like that to your players where it is obvious they're being toyed with buy a big bad they will remember that oh yeah definitely they will be very focused on trying to deal with that in the future um so what are some other best practices when giving your big bad an organization so this is an interesting type of villain because you can make an organization a villain without making a single person the focus of the villainy and then your big bad becomes something that can survive the local leader getting killed. So this this is like, to use D&D examples, you know, you have your Red Wizards or your Zentarum. You know, it's perfectly easy to have a local Red Wizard show up, try and, you know, cause a plague over Neverwinter and, uh, <laughs> and get defeated. And Zastam is still out there because he is the head of the Red Wizards. Yeah. The main thing I would say when you're looking at trying to use organizations to create that gravitas of the organization being villains is to make sure there's a clear association between all the different agents of that organization. For the Red Wizards, for example, they are all wizards who wear red. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, it's a little obvious, but at the same time, every time you run into a wizard that's wearing red, you're reminded that these people are a constant thorn in your side. <laughs> I highly recommend taking a look at the Conspiramid from Knights Black Agents. This can be a really good way to stru structure a network of bad guys. Mm -hmm. This is how Tristan did the City of Cows campaign. We initially dealt with the stuff on the bottom tier of the pyramid and slowly learned that they had they had connections above them. And then those connections with each other, and then the connections above those, you know, until we start getting to the top of the pyramid and still don't stop the demon invasion. But there you go. <laughs> um, but it's it's a really good way to to structure this. It's also a really good way to just the idea of having an organization that has different cells or groups functioning on their own, loosely connected, it allows you the opportunity to create other bad guy personalities that can be the the short-term focus as your big bad. Yeah. You know, like, you can have a, you know, a villain that, oh, you need to deal with that guy, and then you find out he was working for somebody else. You know, it, it gives the players the satisfaction of having dealt with bad guy but then oh there's more to come and we've got more on our hands to deal with yeah that was always interesting to me whenever i was using like villain groups like in the forgotten realms i didn't often use the named people as the face for the group if they were running into the zentarum i would have this one mercenary that's running zentarum operations in this one area that is completely my creation and he might name drop manchun or fazol like I get my orders directly from them, but he's not them. And also that gives you that room to where if your PCs do kill this person off, you aren't necessarily dismantling the whole organization, but you have given the PCs the catharsis of dismantling the face of it in this one area. Yeah. What's also interesting to me is the Sith are actually kind of an organization as a villain in Star Wars. If you look at how they unfold, because you see Vader first you know there's an emperor, but you also don't necessarily know how much he is in charge of everything. And you slowly start seeing the fact that the emperor is more powerful than Vader and there's actually someone ahead of Vader. So in a way, that is kind of like, you know, springing the idea that this isn't just Vader. This is like this whole order mm -hmm. of Darksiders that you have to deal with now. So what are some of your best practices when running Big Bad's in D&D? First off, I think if you want someone to last a long time, you need to think about why the PCs can't touch them right away. You shouldn't do this by DM fiat. There should be a good reason for it. For example, there is a there is an entire order of paladins that your characters do not like in our uh, Midgard campaign, but because they are affiliated with the government and you work for one of the rulers of the Marodi Empire, you're not just free to go into their headquarters and kill all of them and burn the place down. <laughs> I mean, they are kind of assholes. They are definitely assholes. <laughs> but yeah, I think that that's one of the first things you really need to do is like, if I want this person to last long term, why can't they go after them yet? It's very important to understand the very delicate balance between making the big bad threatening, but also letting your players get some wins. Because if the big bad is too powerful and too directly involved in what the PCs are doing, 
and screwing up absolutely everything they attempt, your players are going to get frustrated. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, we play D&D to be heroic. And if the big bad is constantly undermining that, it basically can dampen the enthusiasm of your players. Mm-hmm. So you want to be able to give them some wins while also making it seem like that big bad is a threat. In the City of Kyle's campaign, I hate to keep bringing this up, but Tristan just did this one masterfully. The Ebon Kyle sent assassins after the party. We defeated them fairly well. I think we killed, I think there were six of them. I think we killed two of them outright. Two of them surrendered and two of them we knocked out. The two that surrendered basically vowed to leave leave the region and never come back. And we were like, okay, if we see you, you're dead. We weren't sure what to do with the ones that were prisoners because they weren't willing to do that. And then Alaric, who's kind of based on a Viking-type culture, got a little <laughs> brutal, and he chopped the hands off of one of them and sent him back to the Ebon Call as a message. And we're like, dude, that was brutal. <laughs> he even got in a little bit of trouble with his god for this, and there was a bit of storyline where he had to like reconcile, because his god is a good god, even if he's not. So he kind of had to reconcile that with his god and didn't have access to his powers for a little bit of time. But what we ended up having happen is basically the Ebon Call took eye for an eye, literally, and we had two of our friends killed outright, two of our friends kidnapped because he thought that what we did with the guys that ran away, and one of them had their hand one of our friends had his hands chopped off. <laughs> we were like, oh my god. So we had that win. But then the big bad came in and was like, no, 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 you guys are, you guys are going to pay for this. It was brutal and really rough emotionally, but at the same time, it was so well done. One of the friends that he killed, he had his necromancer resurrect as a zombie and sent him after us, which is not fun, but oh, such a good story. It's not, but it, it is an interesting vector and I think that's another thing I would throw in there as a best practice. There are things you can do in D&D that you don't have access to in other genres. For example, if you kill a big bad, they might come back as undead. Mm-hmm. However, I would say don't pull that trigger too often. Yes. If every villain comes back as some undead bad guy, it's going to get a little tiresome after a while. But once in a while, yeah, that's actually not a, a thing that doesn't happen in a D&D setting. <laughs> I think that brings us to our next discussion point, which is what are some things you should avoid when running your big bads in D&D? And <laughs> overusing certain tools like that is definitely on that list. Exactly. One of the first thing I was going to bring up, because it was top of mind, because I sort of did it, but there was context. Don't put NPCs that the PCs care about in danger too often. Yes. However, that doesn't mean never. There is a concept that was, it was coined by Gail Simone in reference to an event that happened in an issue of Green Lantern called Fridging, where basically Major Force shoved Kyle Rayner's girlfriend into a refrigerator and killed her so that Kyle Rayner would be really mad and fight Major Force. There is a point where a lot of people, without understanding the nuance of this Story trope will call any time a beloved friend or family member of a character is put in danger as fridging them. That's not fully the case. The The point with the situation 
where the point the term was coined was that the girlfriend we can't even tell you the girlfriend's name right now <laughs> she was not a whole character with life and agency she was a prop to motivate the main character and that's one of the things you really need to be careful of actually i'm a nerd enough to say i believe it was alex but <laughs> <laughs> but the point is like i was reading green lantern at that time and alex had only been around for a few issues it was enough for you to realize oh kyle really loves his girlfriend now let's see what happens when we take her away yeah and you know, this was kind of getting to my point. If the if the character only exists to be put in danger, or even worse, only exists to kill them off to create that, that cheap heat, don't do that. Especially if that character never had any kind of agency in their own life, they're just a victim, and that's all they get defined as, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> that, is, that is not a good way to use a character. You need to treat them as a fully fleshed out NPC that has thoughts and ideas of their own it's like yes you can put these characters in danger but you also need to understand what 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 are they going to do in this situation mm -hmm. um i in the the most recent everon campaign the head of the church of silver flame was kidnapped and i had to throw this this scenario together at the last minute because for some reason i didn't think my players would take that <laughs> plot hook and run with it i was really dumb then but as I'm running, you know, throwing together this scenario of them tracking down the cultists that kidnapped him, I'm like, what is he doing? And I'm like, you know what? He's trying to, he's, he's, if he's awake, he's trying to break out. He's trying to get free of his bonds. Let me, let me roll some, oh my God, he rolled a 20. I'm getting, okay. So, you know, like you can have, what are these characters also doing in these situations? And, you know, like, you know, it's even, even if it's something as straight out as the big bad came down and killed this character that the PCs loved while they were off doing something else. Show that that character put up a fight. Yeah. You know, like make sure that that, that NPC has agency and is not just being used as a prop. This isn't too much of a spoiler for what's going on in the campaign. Cause I'm sure you could probably surmise most of this, but you know, you've already established that you and your twin were working for your dad and he was a con artist and you were kind of on the run from time to time because you get in trouble. He got, Killed by those same paladins yes. because he ran one too many uh, scams. Your sister found the scroll, didn't want to summon your grandfather and was hiding it. Like she was competently stealing that scroll so that nobody else could use it. Then she hands it off to you like she is doing things. It wasn't yes. just that, oh, this poor sister is captured and put in danger. It's that you're already kind of framing the story as all of you have been on the run. You've been on the wrong side of the law. This is not like a big surprise twist for her to suddenly be in danger. Right. It's like definitely a character who has agency of her own. Just, okay, she needs a little help right now. <laughs> so do you think you can have a satisfying confrontation with the big bad that resolves without combat? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I had, this is actually thinking back a few years, but um, this back to like AD&D second edition, but we had a Dragonlance campaign where my PCs were uncovering that some of the dragon armies were starting to speak with each other, which was a violation of the Treaty of Whitestone. And the knight that was in charge of the region where these meetings were taking place denied that it was even happening. And they didn't know at first whether or not he was actually in on it or if he was just an idiot. 
And it turned out he was basically, he was an idiot, but he was still a villain because he was ruining their reputation. They couldn't get any help to investigate these dragon armies like the, the other people in the knighthood were questioning them. And they finally get enough, you know, uh, evidence to bring him up for trial in this knight's council. And we had, there was no fighting involved here, but my friend was so upset when he was like testifying against this guy, he grabbed my shirt and ripped my pocket off of my shirt. Oh my <laughs> I mean, you affected the player. I mean, he was he was basically trying to do that thing where he was like grabbing him by, by the front of the shirt, but he just happened to pull my pocket straight off my shirt. <laughs> I still love that moment, which is why I bring that up. But the resolution to that villain was the trial. Like, he is no longer in a position of power. It didn't turn into a fight where they had to kill him off. I think I think it's you have to understand your group in what your group is going to be satisfied with, sometimes your final confrontation with the boss needs to be a fight. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes it does. But I do think there should be moments throughout the campaign where they have confrontations that do not involve combat. Never underestimate the power of everyone having to go to the fancy diplomatic <laughs> dinner and he's there. Exactly. And they, they can't, attack him right there and, and there and i mean how many times have you seen like sometimes even if there is a fight or violence involved sometimes it's not direct if you cause the whole castle to collapse and they're in there theoretically they they died in that castle and if the campaign yeah if the campaign ends there they might as well be dead if it keeps going hmm, maybe not um, but that is another situation where you didn't have to sit there and go round by round by round by round. You know, it's just something that might have ended their threat for now. I think one of the things that I would say, too, about this is don't swim upstream with what your players want. Then mm -hmm. this cuts both ways. Like if you have a character that you've been trying to set up a redemption story for, which actually I don't think is a bad thing once in a while. If the PCs are not investigating any of those leads to find out how sympathetic they are and they never find out that this person has this sad sympathetic past and they want to just murder them don't try and guilt trip them at the last minute when they're finally confronting them for all the horrible things they actually did do yeah if they didn't want to follow up on those things they didn't and if it never happened at the table it didn't happen like don't don't do the okay you finally killed the bad guy but oh look he was running a puppy yeah. <laughs> don't you feel bad don't do that don't do that I was thinking of this when we were talking about, for example, Darth Vader mm -hmm. and this complicated history that this character has. None of us were aware of this until the prequels came out. Mm -hmm. When it comes to your games, if it is not information that the players can learn, it almost doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. You know, it might be something that helps you as a GM to understand what's going on, but if it's something you want to matter for the game, you have to get that information into the hands of the players. Mm -hmm. And you can't make them care about it. Exactly. You know, they may or they may not. Now, when I say you shouldn't swim upstream, though, I'll throw this out there, too. If your PCs, for some reason, are starting to read some kind of sympathy in a villain and you didn't mean for there to be, maybe, maybe play on that. If they really seem to want to, you know, redeem this person instead of just, you know chucking them into, you know, a, a pit of lava. Wow, I got Vader on the brain. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, if, if they do start to move towards that, maybe this person's sympathetic, 
maybe play into it, even if that wasn't your original plan. If it's going to be too hard to pull off, don't rebuild your entire campaign. I'm just saying if it is something where you could do that last minute, you know, hey, I've been wrong about all this. Let's join forces against this bigger evil. Then do it if that's what the direction that the PCs are pushing. Uh, take a look at Loki, for an example, from the MCU. It He was definitely the big bad of some of those early movies, but the character was really well played and we- really well liked. Mm-hmm. And so he got a bit of a redemption arc. Yeah. Or as much of a redemption arc as Loki can get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would argue from the first Thor movie, you could see the anguish in Loki at how Odin treated him. Yes. Like, that was completely justified, even from the first movie, but the way he vented it was not productive. (laughs) I'm going to bring a giant uh, space armada to Earth and take it over, because I'm mad at Dad. (laughs) Uh, So, do you have any other thoughts on running big bads in campaigns? I will say, I think some of the advice we were just talking about, you know, go with what your players are latching onto is just good advice in general. Regardless of whether you're talking about a big bad, if there's a plot hook they just aren't interested in, abandon it and move on. Mm -hmm. You know, this really helps you with running your villains. It's a good tool to develop regardless. Oh, yeah, definitely. The last thing I'll say is. If you put your villain in front of the PCs and they kill that villain, make a new one. <laughs> he had a boss. She had a boss. Exactly. You know, it, it's you can't just snatch defeat from the jaws of the player's victory. I hate to say that, but um, <laughs> let your players have their wins. Exactly. Well, shall we move into downtime research then? So let's move on. No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. Every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to the listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. Just so folks are aware, Wizards has released a new Unearthed Arcana playtest document for one D&D, and it's a pretty beefy one. This one actually backtracks on quite a few controversial things that they had put out in earlier versions of the playtest. It also presents the first look at the monk, and it has revised versions of the bard, cleric, druid, paladin, ranger, and rogue. I haven't had a chance to really take a deep look at it, but there's some interesting things in there. I'm still not 100% happy with what they're doing, but they did make some improvements in there. So I'm hoping that at some point in the nearest future we can either I will be taking a deeper look at it or we will be doing a play test of it. We'll figure it out. So we may or may not be doing a focus episode on it, but you know, it's out there. You should be aware of it. It's 77 pages. So there's a lot to go through. <laughs> yeah. For every class that is included, they, they basically gave three subclasses. Although what's interesting is a few of those were references to, We're not going to change the one from Tasha's very much, so use that. Which I think is kind of, it is indicative of some of their rolling back, some of the other things that they have done. I mean, they did improve the Gloomstalker, which is saying (laughs) something, because Gloomstalker was pretty nice to begin with, but I'm excited about what they did with the Gloomstalker. All right, so my recommendation, usually I don't just flat out recommend stuff that is actually a 5e SRD product, 
Sometimes I do. In this case, I do. This is a product that came out really early in the life cycle of Kobold Press doing 5e SRD products, and that is Demon Cults and Secret Societies. And the reason that I'm bringing that up here is one, you may have missed it because it was one of the first things that they kickstarted for any kind of fifth edition conversion that they were doing. But the other thing is it ties into what we were talking about because it presents a number of cults and secret societies that have like campaign length goals and they give you like an outline. It's not full adventures, but they give you an outline of what that organization is doing for first tier characters, what it's doing for second tier characters, what it's doing for third tier characters. And another thing that it does is there are NPCs that go along with each of those tiers that act as kind of the face of the organization. If you run into this organization at tier three, this is likely the sub boss that you're going to run into that is running this organization there. So I think that was, that's a nice thing to look at, especially, you know, if you keep in mind some of the things that we've been talking about in this episode. We are happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network, so we wanted to give a shout out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying our show, please consider checking out Pandas Talking Games, queer gamers talking about tabletop role-playing games and making outtakes. Join Pandas Phil and Senda every Wednesday answering listener questions about playing, running, and designing TTRPGs. Get cozy and let's talk about some games. We have used up all of our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest, especially since we defeated the big bad of getting this episode completed. <laughs> I hope this adventure was rewarding for you. We hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure.